Our Father in heaven, we come before you and it's so good to, to gather together with your people and to sing your promises, to read your word, to read those promises and then to, to put them into song, to sing about them. It refreshes the soul, Lord, it refreshes my heart and I pray that it refreshes the hearts and the souls of the people that are sitting before me. And I ask now that as we open Your Word, You would continue to, to be with us, to help us to, to focus our minds and our hearts upon Your Word, and that we would shut our mouths and we would listen to what You have to say to us in Your Word. And also, Lord, may You make the Gospel plain uh, to Your people. May You again and again, through Your Word, show the, the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and your, your plan as we were singing in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Seeing it unfold wherever we are, whatever we're studying, whatever passage we are in, the Bible is always singing and showing the story of the Gospel. Lord, we thank You for who You are, for Your character, for Your steadfast love that You show upon us. Be with us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week in our time together and looking at this, this book, the, the book of Jonah, we left off the story seeing that the sailors, the, the pagan sailors, had confronted Jonah because they had cast some lots and found that it was because of Jonah's sin that this great storm had come upon them. You remember that they're on this boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, headed to this place called Tarshish, where Jonah is trying to flee the presence of the Lord. And God sends a great storm. He's pursuing him in the midst of this storm because of his sin. And sailors find this out. They corner Jonah. They confront him and they start asking him some questions some identity questions. They are all focused on finding out the identity of Jonah, who he is, who he really is. And Jonah, as we saw, answered their questions in two ways. First, he told them what? I'm a Hebrew. And then second, he told them that I fear the Lord. Okay, you know, kind of sort of in this part of the book anyways, he, he fears the Lord. But he said, I fear the Lord, talking about Yahweh, his personal name. I fear the Lord who made the sea and also the dry land. Well, we saw in Jonah's answer that he has a self-identity problem going on, right? Because he first says that he's a Hebrew. He first answers with his race, with his ethnicity, where he's from, his people group. And then, after he makes that plain, after he answers in that way, then he brings up his, his fear of the Lord, who he worships. And so in this moment, Jonah finds his identity more in where he's from, more in his country, more in his race, than he finds it in the Lord. And then we, we looked at some examples 
of how we tend to do the same thing and what happens when we do that, when we find our identities more in these other things rather in the Lord. Like Jonah, if we find our identity more in our race or more in our country than we do in God Himself, then we will end up looking like Jonah when God calls us to possibly share the gospel to people who are not of our country, of our race, or who are maybe even against our country or against our race. We'll be like Jonah and will flee, in a sense, from the presence of the Lord and will rebel against Him and will do what's more in line with what we really care about or our identity that's really embedded in our hearts. And some other examples are, if you find your identity more in your work, well, if your work and God and His gospel or who He is, His character and obeying His commands are put on the line beside each other. Maybe if you obey God by sharing the gospel or something along those lines and it may cause you to lose your job, your work, and your identity is in your work, well, what choice are you going to make? Your identity's here. That's what you're going to choose. And you could put many other examples there. If you find your identity in these other things, essentially that's what you worship and that's what you will follow. And that's what Jonah is, is showing here in this moment as his, as his heart is put on display. Well, then the last thing that we saw in our passage last week was that the sailors heard what Jonah said and then became exceedingly afraid. Because at some point Jonah had told them that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. They had keyed in on the fact that this Lord, the one that Jonah worships, is the creator of the sea and the dry land. And they become exceedingly afraid. Now, this morning as we pick up the story in verses 11 to 17, we're going to see that the sailors asked Jonah how they might be saved from the storm that God has brought upon them, which is then going to result in Jonah being cast into the sea, the sailors receiving salvation, and God once again showing mercy and grace upon the undeserving prophet, just as He shows mercy and grace upon the undeserving sailors as they receive salvation. But all the while, while... These things are going on in this particular story. We're going to see that God is once again putting on display the the bigger picture, the, the story of redemption, the story of the gospel. So look with me down at verse 11. Let's read down to verse 17. Beginning in verse 11. Then they said to him, the sailors, talking to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, 
And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the sailors have found out that Jonah's sin is the reason for the storm that they're currently in. And now as the sea continues to get worse, they ask Jonah what it is they must do to have the sea quiet down. In verse 11, they they say to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Jonah, what shall we do? So this will stop. So this storm, so this horrific situation that we have been put in will stop. What must shall we do? And I want you to notice that when they ask this question, they say, what shall we do to you? What shall we do to you in order to make the sea quiet down for us? The sailors figure that since Jonah is the reason that the storm has come in the first place, that maybe he's also the key to making it go away, making it quiet down. You know, He's the reason why it came. Maybe he's also the key to making it get out of here as well. So what shall we do to you? Must, what must we do to you to make it go away? So they ask their question. And essentially, as they're asking their question, they are asking, what shall we do to be saved? That's the essential question that they're asking as this, as this question is raised before Jonah. What must we do in order to be saved? And Jonah replies to them and he says in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Jonah responds and he says, You want to know what you need to do? You need to pick me up and you need to hurl me into the sea. Now, what is going on in this moment, right I mean, this is very out of character to the Jonah that we've been watching over the past few passages that we've been walking through, right? So, I mean, what's going on here? What's going on in in the heart of Jonah as he says this to the sailors? I mean, has Jonah all of a sudden become repentant? Has he truly come to see his rebellion and his sin against God? Or is Jonah just using what looks like self sacrifice to once again escape from going to Nineveh. You know, because if they pick him up and throw him into the sea, then he'll drown and he still won't have to go to Nineveh. So is he being genuine in this moment? Is he being repentant? Has he come to see his sin? Or is he just using this as another escape route? Kind of like we... We're looking at in previous verses where he was asleep in the ship trying to escape the reality that that he's been put in. Well, Timothy Keller in his book, The the Prodigal Prophet, the one that 
I've been quoting from a good bit as we've been going through this series. He raises these questions as well, and he gives this answer. The answer is likely somewhere in the middle. There is no reason to think that Jonah's motives and intentions would be any more orderly and coherent than ours would be in such a moment of peril and crisis. He does not use the language of repentance, nor would it make sense to think that he could turn from, from rebellion toward submission to God so quickly. As the rest of the book will show, Jonah's journey away from self-righteous pride will be a slow one. On the other hand, if he simply wanted to die rather than go to Assyria, which is where Nineveh was located, he could have killed himself without going on a voyage. The clue to understanding his outlook at this point is embedded in his answer to their question. Notice that he says nothing about God. His concern is elsewhere. He says that if they throw him into the water, the sea will become quiet for you. For I declare it is on my account that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah starts to take responsibility for the situation, not because he's looking at God, but because he's looking at them. And this is significant. So Jonah starts taking responsibility for the situation that he's in, as Keller says, not because he's focusing on God in this moment necessarily, but because he's looking at the sailors. And this is indeed significant. Significant because for the first time, Jonah looks at these sailors and he sees their need instead of only being concerned with himself and his own selfishness. Now, as we're going to see later on in the book, Jonah has a long way to go before he deals with his own selfishness and his own pride and his own misunderstanding of, of God's grace and His mercy. But this is at least a start. He has begun to somewhat, anyways, look away from himself to the needs of others. And I think Jonah's decision here also has something to do with the fact that he's been forced to actually enter in into this situation. And what I mean by that is as we've been seeing Jonah before this moment, he's been putting a good bit of distance between him and the sailors, right? The sailors, as this event has gone on, they've been on the deck, the top of the ship, trying to do whatever they can to save the ship and to save their own lives, throwing cargo over the board, overboard, crying out to their gods. And Jonah is inside the ship while this is going on, asleep or just staying away from them. But now, in this moment, he's been forced to enter into the situation. He's been forced to become up close and personal with these men. And if you think about it, it's pretty similar in our own situations. So Jonah, he gets put up close and personal with these guys. You know, they're staring him in the face with desperation in their eyes. I mean, they're asking him, what must we do to be saved? 
So he's up close and personal. They're staring at him in the face. He's now in the situation. And this is whenever he begins to look outside of himself and he sees their need. Well, what do we often do when we don't want to enter in into somebody's problems? Or if we don't want to help somebody? If we don't want to give of our time? If we don't want to give of our money? Or whatever it may be to these other people. Whoever they may be. These people, right? These people, those people. Well, we create distance from them. It's a lot easier to ignore them if they're over there and I'm over here. Like Jonah in that moment. They're on top of the ship over there and I'm down here separated from them. Their problems are their own. i got my own stuff to worry about. But when we're forced for some reason to become up close and personal with these people that we tend to try to separate ourselves from or to think that they are different from us, we begin to see, you know, they may not be all that different. Their needs are actually, you know, pretty similar to ours. They're, they're just, they're people. They're, in this case, they're, they're men who are asking for salvation. So when we're forced to enter in into the situation, it's very hard to, to continue in our own selfishness, to continue in our own pride, as Jonah does in, throughout this book. So all this leads to the response that Jonah gives them, him being forced to, to enter in into the situation, to become up close and personal with them, to actually see their need. All of this leads to the response that he gives them when they ask what it is they need to do in order to be saved. And he tells them, hurl me into the sea. Hurl me into the sea because I'm the one who deserves this storm, not you. I'm the one whom God is angry at, not you. I'm the one who has sinned against God, not you. I mean, this specific sin. I mean, obviously the sailors have sinned against God as well because they're sinners, but this specific sin, Jonah is the one who's guilty, not them. And so he says, cast me into the sea. Cast me into the sea because I'm the one who deserves the wrath of this storm not you. And the sailors, they hear this, but at first they don't want to do it. Still acting very honorably, they don't want to cast Jonah into the sea, which would have been the natural thing to do. I mean, you think about these sailors, they don't really know Jonah. They have no real relationship with him except for the relationship that's been built on the boat. They find out that he's the reason why the storm has come, and they find out he's the way to getting rid of it. Throw him overboard. Get it, get him out of here. You know, make the storm go away. But they don't want to do that. Why? Because they don't want innocent blood to come upon them. They don't want to take his life. You know, they think enough sin has already been committed in this moment. It's why we are in the position that we are in. We don't want to just pile it up even higher. No, instead of this automatically taking hold of him and chunking him into the sea, they try once again to make it to land. They, they dig their rows into the water trying to make it back to shore, but ultimately they're unable to because 
as the author says, the storm continues to get worse. It, it grows more and more tempestuous against them. And so after trying in vain to make it to land, they see that they have no other choice but to cast Jonah into the sea. But before they do, they do something else. In verse 14, we read this, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah or they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Throughout this event, the, the sailors have been crying out to you know, all these other gods, probably whichever god they can think of, trying to, to seek some help. You know, maybe one of them can, can make the storm go away, but now in this moment, before they throw Jonah overboard, they cry out to the Lord. The, the living God, the one true God, using His personal name. They cry out saying, O Lord, O Yahweh. They cry out to Him using His personal name. And within their prayer, they ask that they not perish because of Jonah, that innocent blood not be laid upon them. And then they acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty over the situation. And again, this points to the honor of these men. They continually act honorably as the situation plays on. And it also gives us a hint to what is about to happen in verse 16 when after they throw Jonah into the sea and it calms down, they, they actually receive salvation through that event. But before we see that, I want you to really pay attention to what is going on as these men actually throw Jonah into the sea. Because God is using this scene, the scene of Jonah being cast into the raging sea, to paint a very vivid picture of the gospel. Now how, right? How, how does this scene, how does Jonah being cast into the raging sea put the gospel on display for us? How does this paint a picture of the gospel? Well, remember that Jonah is sacrificing himself. He is acting as a sacrifice in this moment. He has told the sailors, throw me into the sea so that it calms down for you. Throw me into the sea so that I can take the wrath of the waves, of the storm, so that you don't have to. In other words, Jonah is acting as a what we would call a substitutionary sacrifice. He bears the punishment so that the others won't have to. He takes the brunt of the punishment. He takes the wrath of the sea so they don't have to. And who does this paint a picture of? It paints a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read from uh, this guy. I'm probably going to uh, say his name wrong, but it's Jacques Ellul. He comments on this, this picture of Jonah being cast into the sea. And oh, it's such a, what he says here, it, it beautifully puts into perspective how this points us to the Lord Jesus. So listen closely 
as I read what this guy says. He says, at this point, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat, which if you remember is Old Testament language. The sacrifice he makes saves them. The sea calms down. He saves them humanly and materially. Jonah is an example of the Christian way. What counts is that this story is in reality the precise intimation, which just means a hint or an indication, of an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, but his attitude announces, is done by Jesus Christ. He it is who accepts total condemnation. Jonah is not Jesus Christ, but he is one of the long line of types of Jesus, each representing an aspect of what the Son of God will be in totality. And if it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation can save others around him, then this is far more true when the one sacrificed is the Son of God Himself. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. Man, isn't that just awesome? I mean, in this moment, as we are watching Jonah being cast into the sea by these sailors, God all the while is using it to paint the picture of the bigger story that the whole Bible is always showing. Jonah is a type of Christ. As Jacques Ellul says, Jonah puts on display what Jesus Christ will look like in totality. Jonah puts on display the, the attitude of sacrifice, of, of substitutionary sacrifice. He takes the waves, the storm, so the sailors don't have to. But Jesus Christ, when He comes on the scene, He takes total condemnation for you. This is just a small, incomplete picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you or can accomplish for you if you cling to Him in repentance and faith. This is why Jesus in the New Testament, He picks up on this story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, some of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they're, they're, they corner Jesus and they're asking Him for a sign. They're asking Him for some type of validation that He really is the Messiah and that His teaching really is true. And, and this is how He responds in, in chapter 12 and beginning in verse 39 to their request. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ is the better Jonah. Listen to this. Jonah deserves to take the wrath of the sea because of his sin. He deserves to take the wrath of the sea. 
So even though he's making a sacrifice here, he deserves it. Whereas Jesus was completely spotless and without sin. He did not deserve the cross. You did. Jonah is sacrificed to save the lives of a few sailors. Whereas Jesus takes upon Himself the sins of all God's people and saves them for all eternity. Jonah takes the wrath of the sea and gets swallowed by a fish. Jesus Christ takes the wrath of God and gets swallowed by the grave, which He then overcomes in victory when He rises from it. Three days later. The Bible is always telling the bigger story. Is that what we look for whenever we are reading it? Do we always have this perspective in mind as we read through all of the different books, all of the different stories of the Bible? Do we always have in mind and within our hearts that the Lord Jesus and His Gospel is always being put on display? Now, what do these pagan sailors do after they see Jonah sink into the sea and then watch it go calm? What do they do? How do they respond? Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think in this moment, as they cast Jonah into the sea, they watch him sink into the the depths of the sea, and then watch the sea go calm as soon as they do this, I think they receive genuine salvation. I think they actually become saved. And I think that because of how they respond to what has just happened. It says, look there in the verse, it says that they feared the Lord, again, personal name of God, they feared the Lord exceedingly that they made a sacrifice to Him, and that they also made vows. All of which are proper responses when you come to realize who God really is. But most of all, what makes me believe these men receive salvation is that they do all of this after the storm is over. The storm's gone now. So typically we would think, While the storm is going on, these men cry out to the Lord, they fear Him exceedingly, but then it goes away and they say, oh well, we we got ourselves out of that one, now we can just return to our way of life, how we lived before. I was just picking God. (laughs) They don't do that. The storm's gone. And the author says that they fear the Lord exceedingly. And it makes me think of the disciples when they were in the boat with Jesus. You remember they're greatly afraid whenever the storm comes and then when they see Jesus walking on the water. But then whenever, the, whenever He cries out to the waves and to the wind and it ceases, they become even more afraid. The same thing's happening with these guys. They cast John into the sea, they see it go calm, and they realize who they're really dealing with the living God. They fear the Lord more after the storm is over than when it was raging against them. Also, I want you to notice that in this moment, the very thing that Jonah did not want to happen, happens. He 
Throughout this story so far, and we'll continue in the story, he does not want Gentiles to receive salvation from God. I mean, that's originally why he ran from going to Nineveh, from the word of the Lord. But what happens in this moment? Gentiles receive salvation. They get saved. And it's through Jonah being cast into the sea. They receive salvation. The very thing that Jonah has despised and not wanted to happen, happens. And this again points us to the, to the great mercy and grace and steadfast love of God. One of the main themes that's been flowing through this book. Now after commenting on the salvation of the sailors, the author, he puts the focus back on Jonah. So he goes back to what's happening with Jonah, who is currently sinking into the depths of the sea. But God is is still with him. He hasn't left him. He's not going to abandon him to drown into the depths of the sea and the depths of the sea and, and perish. In verse 17, we see this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God appoints a great fish to go and swallow Jonah so that he doesn't die. Because what's going to happen otherwise? I mean, what happens if God doesn't send this fish to go and to swallow Jonah? He's going to die, right? How's he going to survive? So God appoints a fish, appoints Remember that word, a point, pointing to the sovereignty of God, yet another theme that flows through this book that we're going to continue to see. So he appoints a fish, a fish of salvation, to come and to swallow up Jonah so that he doesn't perish. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, so far we've seen that that God is sovereign over the wind, He's sovereign over the sea, He's sovereign over the sailors, He's sovereign over Jonah, And now we see that He's sovereign over this great fish as He tells the fish, go swallow Jonah. He is the one who has appointed this fish to swallow him. And at this point, many become skeptical at the story of Jonah because, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, it's I mean, it's pretty strange and... I guess maybe if you didn't know the Bible very well, kind of hard to believe. I mean, think about it. This great fish, whatever it is, we don't know what kind of fish it is, but this great fish comes, it swallows Jonah, and he stays in this fish for three days and three nights. I mean, that's pretty weird. It's not something you hear about every day. But if you think about it, and you put it into the perspective of the whole biblical storyline, it's not all that strange. It's not all that weird. Why? Because God often uses what is very strange and very weird to save His people. He commands Noah to build an ark that He will use to save Noah, his family, and two of every animal. Pretty strange. He makes a covenant with a man named Abraham, gives him a son that he's going to use to bless the nations with. But he doesn't give Abraham the son until he's 100 years old. Strange. 
He saves His people from the Egyptians by taking them through the Red Sea. Through the sea. He doesn't take them around the sea. He doesn't call them to build a bridge over the sea. He splits the sea and they walk through it. Strange. He saves His people from the Philistines and their champion, Goliath, by using a shepherd boy who strikes Goliath down with a sling and a stone. Again and again and again. This was a few stories. Again and again, if you read throughout the Bible, God loves to take what is strange, what is weird, and what is unexpected to bring salvation to His people. And in this moment, it just happens to be a great fish. Now let me be careful to say that Jonah at this point has not received the same type of salvation that the Gentiles have received. Because when he goes to Nineveh, we're going to see that his heart is still hardened toward them and it's still hardened toward God. I mean, he's been saved in this moment, but not like the Gentiles have been saved. He hasn't come to grips with the mercy and the grace of God as they have. But God has provided salvation for him through this fish. And all of this, this strangeness, this, this strange uh, language, these strange events of how God saves His people, what He uses, all of this culminates in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cannot believe that God can use a fish to save Jonah, or that He can use an ark to save Noah and his family and two of every animal, or that He can use David to save the Israelites from the Philistines and from Goliath and those other stories that I mentioned. If you can't believe that, then you will not believe truly and genuinely that God Himself came down in the likeness of men and hung on a cross and saved you from your sin. Because that's even more strange than anything else in the Bible if you think about who God is and how holy He is, how strange is that? That the holy, holy, holy God, who is three times a cut above us and above this world and everything else that exists, would humble Himself, empty Himself of all of His glory and hang on the most wretched object of the day and die for people who sought to take His very kingdom from Him in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3. That's who He died for. That's who we are. You know, We are the people who tried to take His kingdom from Him. And then the King Himself, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, comes down and He dies for us so that we can dwell in that very kingdom with Him. That's strange. That's weird. But that's who God is. And that's what He does for His people. That's the salvation that He provides. Ultimately in Christ. If you cannot believe the strange stories throughout the Bible, you will not ultimately believe and come to grips with what God has done for you in the cross. Now, why, do, why does God love to do this? Why does He love to use the strange things of the world or the foolish things of the world to bring salvation to His people? 
Well, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 20. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read this passage. And then we'll close. So why does God love to use the strange and the foolish things of, of the world to save? What does Paul say? Beginning in verse 20, he says this. Excuse me, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why. That's why God uses the foolishness of the world what seems foolishness to us anyway, and what seems foolishness to Satan and his, his armies, his minions, that's why he uses it, because he puts us to shame through it. And we have nothing to boast in except in him. To some, this story and other stories of the Bible may seem foolish, it may seem unbelievable, it may seem like it's a fantasy, just kind of like a legend. But to those who are chosen, chosen as Paul says here, by God, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. And it causes us to give praise and honor and glory to Him and to Him alone. You know, do you see these things in this way? You know, as you read these stories, as you see the salvation of the Lord, does it result in praise? Of God? Does it result in giving Him glory and just standing in awe in what He has done, not only here in this story, but ultimately in the cross of the Lord Jesus? I pray that it does. If it doesn't, then He welcomes you to come and to ask because He can give it to you. He is able. I pray with me. Father, we come before You and oh, we thank You 
Once again, as we've been going through this story of, of Jonah, we thank you for the fact that it's in the Bible, that you chose to put this account in the Bible so that we can read it, so that we can see your glory in it. You using the, the foolish things of the world or what we would think to be foolish anyways to bring about salvation so that we would boast in nothing else but in you. Lord, we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus and the salvation that you have accomplished through him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.